We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Uh, good morning. My name is Sam. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm, I'm glad that we get to be here uh, this morning to uh, submit ourselves under a really important passage of Scripture and to worship together. Um, that passage, by the way, is Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. So if you, uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to that passage, Romans chapter 3. And uh, hey, real quick, before we jump in, let me just mention a couple of things, a couple of announcements. Um, first of all, uh, for all of our Covenant members, we have a members meeting next week. So November 1st, uh, we have our members meeting. That The service is going to be um, back at the theater. So we're, we're going home, so to speak, um, for that uh, service in the morning. But the meeting is going to be here. So this will be the last thing that we do here in this uh, location. And uh, remember, uh, apart from... Uh, uh, with the exception of the incoming families who are, who are being voted on, we're asking for, um, for one representative of, the fam- of each uh, membership family to come um, just so that we can do the whole thing here and, uh, and not have to worry about um, uh, space issues or social distancing issues. So, um, so keep that in mind. And uh, on that note, uh, if you're a member, you should have received an email from, uh, from Laura on, with instructions on voting and with a link for, um, for the various things that we're voting on. The, the two most important things are incoming members and uh, also new pastors. Um, Matthew Barrett and Joseph Lanier, we're voting on them to become uh, new elders at Emmaus. And so, um, so you can find uh, the testimony questionnaire for all the incoming members and then also the doctrinal questionnaire that we had Joseph and Matthew fill out. So be sure to read those. And then um, lastly, just along those lines, uh, if you have not had a chance yet, Pastor Josh wrote uh, a post on our blog, EmmausBlog.com, laying out the qualifications of an elder and what you should be looking for um, when you're voting. And so I would say that is maybe um, one of the more important posts that have been on that website for a very long time. So um, so be sure to go and read that before you vote um, for Joseph and Matthew. And uh, yeah, I think that's all the announcements that I have. So let's, uh, let's pray together. Actually, let me read our passage, um, and then we'll pray and, and we'll get into it. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. These are the words of God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. 
For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's pray. Triune God, please receive our worship this morning. We have come here to this place as your people at your bidding. So we humble ourselves under your word. Receive our attention as adoration as we give ourselves over to studying your word. Lord Jesus, speak to us this morning. Speak to us about your cross and the salvation you have wrought. Lord, where else can we go? For you have the words of eternal life. God, my brothers and sisters, gather here with me, and we are in need of far more than anything a mere man can give. They need communion with their God. So Holy Spirit, do through your servant what I cannot do in myself. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, a rock and our Redeemer. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. This morning we are privileged to meditate on what many scholars deem the most important paragraph in the book of Romans. Most important paragraph. Recall several weeks ago when we read, read the, la- the, latter chap- uh, the latter section of chapter 1 in which Paul explains why and how the wrath of God is manifest from heaven against all ungodliness. I said on that week, I said that that passage was the beginning of the first leg of Paul's argument, the first premise of Paul's argument. Remember, he's concerned in this book with describing and defining and commending and reveling in the exquisite gospel, the good news. But before he can describe the good news of what God does to save man from his sin, he has to describe the bad news of human sin and depravity and the wrath of God that it demands. He has to first spread out the silky, pitch-black backdrop of sin so that the brilliance of the gospel diamond can be seen clearly by contrast. That's what he has been doing. And that leg of the argument began in chapter 1, verse 18, and it continued all the way until chapter 3, verse 20. And this, this whole first premise, this whole first section of the book is summed up in that passage that Pastor Adam preached last week, summarized well in Romans chapter 3, verse 9, which says, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That is the point for which Paul has been laboring to argue over the past three chapters. The Gentiles 
are doomed. The Jews are doomed. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And that ungodliness is universally pervasive. That's what he's been arguing for the past several weeks. And now, having laid out that silky backdrop, Paul is now prepared in this passage to present the brilliant, exquisite gospel diamond for our adoration. This is the most crucial turning point in the whole book of Romans. Paul is now presenting the gospel for our admiration, for our appreciation. But in doing so, he's also resolving a problem that he has created over the preceding sections of the book, right? The point in the preceding chapters was to show God's righteousness in judging sin. He's trying to argue that God is right to judge sin. He's right to have wrath revealed from heaven against all ungodliness so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. But you see, Paul was too effective in arguing that. He was so effective and making that point that now the question has changed. The question is no longer, how can God be just in condemning everyone? That's not the question anymore. The question has changed. He has made that point too well. Now the question has changed to, how can God be just in justifying anyone? How can he be righteous in justifying anyone, given how wicked the whole world is, how depraved humanity is? How can God rightly set his love on anyone? How can anyone be acquitted? That's the question that Paul will answer in this week's passage. How can God be just and the justifier? So let's begin. Verse 21. Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now we will return to this idea of the relationship between the Old Testament and the gospel uh, later on, that the, the, this... the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law, and the law and the prophets bear witness to it. We'll return to that point later on, but first, we have to deal with this phrase, the righteousness of God, this term, the righteousness of God. Much ink has been spilled over these words describing what Paul means by it. What does he mean by it? Right? And there, there are many different takes on it. There are so many different takes on what the righteousness of God in the book of Romans means. But broadly speaking, commentators divide up into to one of two categories. The first is to insist that the righteousness of God is something along the lines of God's own moral perfection. God's own moral perfection. The righteousness of God is God's own righteousness, his own judicial and ethical uprightness his essential inability to do injustice, right? And this would include his trustworthiness and his covenant faithfulness, for example, right? his perfect track record to do what he says he's going to do, to be true to his promises, and to be true to the covenants that he enters into with his people. So that's the first option. The second option is to think about God's righteousness as his saving righteousness, Right? His, his active intentionality, 
his active intentionality to come after his, his people to save them. And this would include the notion, for example, of imputed righteousness, right? A righteousness that God gives to his people out of grace and saving them. So to simplify, are we talking about the righteousness that belongs to God or are we talking about the righteousness that comes from God? Are we talking about the righteousness that belongs to God or are we talking about the righteousness that comes from God? And the answer is both. Commentators feel like they have to choose between the two, but they really don't. In fact, I think Paul uses this phrase on purpose. He uses a phrase that has the capacity for a versatility of purposes. The whole book uses the righteousness of God in a variety of ways, almost as a play on words. You could say that Paul intends to show how God is righteous in righteously saving his people by giving them the righteousness of Christ. Yeah, I mean, in verses 21 and 22, you see him using both, both, uh, both uses of this phrase. In fact, in verse 26, I think the point is made really clear. Verse 26 says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, that's the righteousness that belongs to God, and the justifier. That's the righteousness that comes from God. And so, kids, here's the point. Any kid, are there any kids? This, yes, there are. The, the Gillow children. Um, kids, uh, here's the point that I want you to remember. And, you know, the adults, you can remember this as well if you, if you want to. God, it's the same point that Pastor Adam brought up last week. Do you remember it? God always does what's Right. God always does what's right. He does what is right when he judges sin and he does what is right when he saves sinners. God always does what's right. And so this righteousness, this righteousness that, that saves, that saves comes, Paul says, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That is how the righteousness is appropriated. That's how we get righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. This is the only way that God saves anyone. The only way that God saves anyone. He, he saves them by giving them righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. They bring their empty hands of faith to Jesus, and in receiving Jesus by faith, they receive righteousness. And this is the case, Paul says, for everyone who is saved who wishes to be saved. For there is no distinction. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which is to say that what Paul says in chapter 1 is true for everyone without distinction. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile and their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's what it means to fall short of the glory of God. It is a failure to recognize God's all-importance. It's a failure to recognize God's worth and to insist on rendering the worship that is due only Him to lesser objects. That's what it means to fall short 
of the glory of God. And the point that Paul is making is that all of us, all of us, Jew or Gentile, black or white, rich or poor, man or women, children or parents, all of us are condemned the same way. We're condemned in our first father, Adam, and we sin and fall short of the glory of God. We are condemned the same way. And everyone who is saved, everyone who is saved, Jew or Gentile, black or white, rich or poor, men or women, children or parents, everyone who is saved is saved the same way and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now this term justified brings up the notion of God's righteousness again. Justification is a legal term. It's a judicial term. And it speaks to the declaration that God pronounces over someone, that one is no longer guilty and now is right before God, has righteous standing before God. That's what it means to be justified, to receive justification. It means that God pronounces that the person is no longer guilty and is righteous. And Paul says that those who are justified, those who receive this, this pronouncement over them, this declaration of righteous, have declared, have, uh, have this declaration pronounced over them by His grace as a gift. It's a gift of grace. You can't work for it. You only receive this declaration if you receive it as a gift. But again, if this is so... How can God remain just? Right? The sinner that God acquits in the act of justification when he says not guilty, the sinner that God acquits in the act of justification in himself does not deserve justification. He doesn't deserve acquittal. He deserves death. How can God remain just if he does not render the penalty due them? How can he be just while also being the justifier? Well, we begin to get an answer how this is possible when we consider how God justifies. What are the mechanics of it? How does God do it? How does he justify? How does he save sinners? By, chap, uh, verse 25, by putting Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. What does that mean? Well, that word propitiation relates to the satisfaction of divine wrath. That's what it's getting at. The satisfaction of divine wrath. God has wrath against sin, and propitiation is the satisfaction of that wrath. And so Christ being a propitiation means that the, the, that the wrath of God against sin is satisfied in Him. For those for whom he is a propitiation, he satisfies God's wrath for them. Now, some people find this objectionable, and they will articulate it in a foolish way. They'll, they'll say that uh, this somehow means that God's wrath against sin implies that God the Father stands above humanity, eager to pour out his wrath. He's just angry towards people, and so the Son sort of stands in our stead, disagrees with the Father's estimation, stands in our stead, and somehow twists the Father's arm and forces Him to show mercy on us. But that's not what's happening here. There is no divide in the Trinity. 
It is not the case that God the Father hates sin and sinners, but Christ loves sinners. And so he offers himself as a propitiation in our stead as if the Father wanted one thing and the Son wanted something else. That's not what's happening here. Remember who it is. Who is it that put Christ forward to be received as a propitiation? Who did that? Whose idea was it? It was God, right? God has provided for himself his own means to show mercy to sinners. But we're not done with this passage yet because we still need to figure out what it means that, that God put Christ forward as a propitiation. We know what a propitiation is. What does it mean that he put Christ forward as a propitiation? Well, the language here is not simply appealing to the notion of satisfying wrath, though this is crucial. It's also appealing to the Old Testament concept of atonement, which includes the satisfaction of divine wrath, but it includes much more than that, right? And the, the clearest Old Testament picture of atonement is found in Leviticus chapter 16, where we find the day of the atonement described. And this was the most important day of the year because it was the, the day in which the high priest of Israel would enter into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sins of the people. And this day included many elaborate, and, uh, uh, elaborate rituals and elaborate processes, and it involved concepts of cleansing and expiation where, where the sins of the people were removed and the stain of sin was cleansed. And also, most importantly, the sins of the people were punished in the substitutionary death of animal sacrifices. And then the, the high priest would take the blood of these animal sacrifices, he would take that blood and enter into the most holy place in the tabernacle, the holy of holies. He was only allowed to go in there once a year. He would take this blood into the holy of holies and he would make atonement for it. And in the holy of holies, there was the mercy seat. Very important, the mercy seat. And he would sprinkle the blood of the animals on that mercy seat. And he would, he would say, as if to say, Lord, this people is guilty. This people is guilty, but please receive the blood of this people in their stead. Receive the death of this animal in their stead. So he would make substitution for them. The mercy seat. So when Romans 3 says that God put forward Christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith for all who believe without distinction, Paul is saying, Paul is saying that that mercy seat, that mercy seat, God took it and he brought it out for everyone and anyone to receive redemption and justification. So this mercy seat that was hidden by veils that only the high priest had access to once a year. This is where propitiation was made. God the Father took that mercy seat, which is Christ, and he brought it out into the open for everyone to have access to. What was once hidden by veils and sealed off only to the nation of Israel now has been taken out into the, the place, into the open air for anyone to receive by faith. Now atonement isn't available strictly to the few. Now it's available to the many. And what do they find there? What do the many, what do the masses find when they come to this mercy seat that's out in the open? What do they find there? They find Jesus Christ, the spotless lamb of God who suffers as a substitute 
We sin and fall short of the glory of God. And so God has wrath for Christ to be the propitiation to be received by faith means that when we receive him by faith, he satisfies the wrath of God on our behalf, the wrath that our sin earns. And this is how God justifies. Justification, that legal declaration that we are not guilty and righteous, justification happens this way. It cannot be accomplished if our sins are not accounted for. And they are accounted for in Christ Jesus. So, do you wish to receive justification? Do you wish to receive the legal verdict that you are no longer guilty? Do you wish for the Father to look upon you and not hold your sins against you? There is one and only one place to go to propitiate the wrath of God, and that is in Jesus Christ. So we're now, we've now, we're now prepared to answer that question, the, the primary question of this passage. How can God be just and the justifier? How can He do it? How can God be just and the justifier? And the answer is, He can be just in justifying because those whom He justifies have their sins justly punished in Christ Jesus. They have their sins justly punished in Christ. This is very important. There has never been, nor will there ever be, an unpunished sin. There has never been, nor will there ever be, an unpunished sin. All sin is punished in hell or on the cross. All sin is punished in hell or on the cross. And every person who, who ever experiences the forgiveness that comes from God does not experience that forgiveness because God ignores their sin. That's not how they experience the forgiveness of God. They experience the forgiveness of God because God deals with their sin in Christ Jesus. Anyone who experiences the forgiveness of, from God experiences that forgiveness because God punishes their sin in Christ. Even saints in the Old Testament. Their sin too was punished at the cross of Christ. Did you see that? In verse 25, this, that is this idea of God putting Christ forward as a propitiation to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. So evidently, with the Old Testament atonement, with those Old Testament sacrifices, God wasn't dealing with sin in an ultimate sense. He wasn't ultimately dealing with sin. He was passing over sin. Those sacrifices were pointing to something beyond themselves. He was passing over former sins. And this is why verse 21 tells us that the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law. It's not manifested in the law. It's manifested apart from the law. If the law shows God passing over former sins, then God's righteousness with respect to those sins is still suspect. What happens to those sins? What happens to the sins of faithless Israel? What happens to the sins that God passes over, the sins of Moses and David and Nehemiah? Are they freebies? Are, they, are, are the sins that they commit freebies until after Christ comes? Does God just let them slide? 
If he did that, how could he be righteous? That's the question that looms until Christ comes. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. His righteousness, in other words, wasn't shown with respect to sins back then when he was passing over former, sin, former sins, but rather his righteousness is shown at the present time. Now, now that Christ has arrived and the mercy seat has been brought out into the open and propitiation has been offered and the wrath of God has been satisfied on account of the blood of Jesus. So what happened to the sins of Moses and David and Nehemiah, Old Testament saints whom we will meet in heaven? What happened to their sins? Those sins that God had formerly passed over? What happened to them was that they were punished in the death of Jesus Christ. They were punished there at the cross. God was passing over them not to leave them unpunished. He was passing over them until the present time when he could demonstrate his righteousness by paying for them in the death of Jesus Christ. You see, every saint in all human history is saved the exact same way. The cross is the center point of all of human history. It's the gravitational center of the whole story of human history. Even Old Testament saints who had no idea that there would be a Nazarene carpenter named Jesus, son of Mary. They had no idea about all of those details. They were saved by this Nazarene carpenter. They were saved by him on account of his death without knowing him. How? Well, they had faith that God would provide. They had faith in God. They didn't know how he would do it. They did not know how he would do it. They didn't know it would happen by virtue of this mysterious incarnation whereby the second person of the Trinity without ceasing to be God became man and lived for them and died for them and rose for them and ascended for them. They didn't know all of those details. They didn't know how God would do it, but they did know that God would do it. And so we, on this side of the cross, can look back and say, oh, that's what Abraham received by faith. He received the atonement that Christ would offer. And that's how we are saved, by faith. We receive the atonement that Christ did offer. Everyone before the incarnation was looking ahead to the cross. Everyone since has been looking behind to the cross. And what they saw when they were looking ahead to the cross was a blurry vision. It was a blurry vision of God's redemption. But since Christ has come, the picture has sharpened. What was blurry for them is clear for us. And this is what's clear. All fall short of the glory of God and those who are justified are justified by His grace as a gift through faith or through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So what does this leave us with? It leaves us with humility. It leaves us with a humble gratitude. A gospel message that sharply rebukes and abolishes any sort of boasting, any sort of boasting or sense of superiority based on ethnicity or class or gender or wisdom or knowledge or anything else. Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is 
excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. All, without distinction, are condemned the same way. And all, without distinction, are saved the same way. They are justified the same way. And that way that we're all saved by is a way that strips us of any sense of haughtiness. Right? We are beggars. We are right before God only on account of an alien righteousness that we did not earn. It was given to us. And we receive now, not by works, but by faith. This gospel, if rightly understood, takes the swagger out of our step. And kids, here's the point for you. Remember, the first point was, God always does what's right. Here's the second point. Everyone needs Jesus, and anyone can have Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus, and anyone can have Jesus. We are all in trouble because of our sin. We all need help and forgiveness, and only Jesus can give that. And no one is out of his reach which means anyone can come and get help and forgiveness from Jesus if they ask him. Verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. We uphold the law. How is that, Paul? How is that that you're not overthrowing the law, that you're actually upholding the law? How can he spend all of this time saying, no one will be justified by works of the law. Stop looking to the law to be justified. No one will be justified by works of the law, only justified by faith in Christ. How can he say all of that and then conclude this section by saying, oh, by the way, none of what I have said actually overthrows the law. In fact, it upholds the law. How is that, Paul? Well, this phrase, upholding the law, works on a number of levels. First of all, Remember, in verse 21 and 22, Paul had just said that the law and the prophets bore witness to the righteousness of God that is manifested apart from the law and in Jesus Christ, right? It's possible for Paul to say all of this and not contradict the law because the law was always meant to point to Christ. The law reveals sin, and it's, it's a, it's a cul-de-sac, so to speak. It's got the sign that says, no exit here. You will not find forgiveness here. Look elsewhere. It's telling you to look elsewhere. And it's saying, here are some signs, right? Forgiveness is coming. Here are some signs. Here are some hints about what it's going to look like. And then when Jesus Christ shows up and we stop looking to the law to justify us and we look to Christ, the law, so to speak, says, my work is done here. Mission accomplished. But the law has always been pointing away from itself for justification. Justification comes apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. But secondly, upholding the law applies in another, in, in another way. Because while obedience to the law was never intended to be the means of justification, obedience to the law was never intended to be the means of justification, obedience to the law is still required. 
It is still required. But the problem is, no one who has not been justified can properly obey the law. No one who does not have the law of God written on their hearts by the Spirit of God and the new covenant can obey the law. We have a whole Old Testament testifying to that fact, saying no one can obey the law without being justified. So obedience to the law, in other words, is resourced by our justification. Until we have been forgiven, until we have been united to Christ by faith, until we have the Holy Spirit empowering us, we cannot obey the law. So Paul is saying, listen, when we stop looking to be justified through obedience to the law and instead look for justification through faith in Christ, we're actually doing the only thing possible that makes obedience to the law possible. We're actually helping ourselves obey the law when we stop trying to obey the law for justification. Don't look there for justification. Look to Christ for justification, and that will actually help you obey the law. It's only possible to obey the law when we are not obeying the law in order to be justified, but rather because we have been justified. Once we're justified, obedience to the law can now take its proper place in our lives. So where does all of this leave us, brothers and sisters? I think there are two lessons for us to walk away with, one for the Christian and the other for the non-Christian. For the Christian, this passage, this passage should offer overwhelming assurance and confidence in God to save us should offer overwhelming assurance and confidence in God to save us. And with this, we should experience an overwhelming humility in light of our sin and inability in contrast with Christ's righteousness and dependability. Do you see, dear Christian, do you see what your sin earned? It is no small thing. God has wrath for sin, and his wrath has to be propitiated. And the only thing, your sin is so bad that the only thing that could propitiate that wrath is the sinless Son of God dying on your behalf. Do you actually believe that? Do you believe that your sin is actually that serious? It's costly. It is costly. It was a costly price to pay, Christian. And you should be humbled by that fact. But you should also be brimming with gratitude because while your redemption was a costly price to pay, Christ paid it in full. God always does what's right. And in saving you, he is right. In justifying you, he is right. Because, Christian, this should comfort you because none of your sins have been ignored. If you're a Christian, that should bring you tremendous comfort to know that none of your sins have been ignored. He didn't let any of them slide. No one is let off the hook. Rather, they have all been decisively dealt with in the person and work of Jesus Christ, which means you are not on thin ice. God's not going to bring them up again. They've been dealt with. You're not on thin ice, so this should bring tremendous 
gratitude and comfort and assurance for the Christian. But for the non-Christian, this passage invites faith in Christ. Non-Christian, don't you see the gratuitous love that is offered? Atonement for sin, atonement for your sin isn't hidden behind layers of formality and ritualistic services and secrecy. The mercy seat has been placed out into the open air for anyone. Atonement in Christ is offered for anyone and everyone who would receive Him by faith. That's it. Faith. He wants to give it to you as grace. Listen, redemption is costly for Christ so that it can be freely offered to the world. It cost Him everything so that it could cost us nothing. We come with nothing but faith and receive it as a gift. Oh, would you feel the weight of that first portion of Romans way down, pressed down on you. Outside of Christ, the God of all wisdom and righteousness looks upon you and declares, guilty, condemned, but He also has provided a means for your acquittal. And it's not a loophole. It's not a legal loophole. It's actual administration of justice. It's justice in Christ on your behalf. So if you will have Him, if you will have Him by faith, then the declaration from God above will and can truly change from guilty to non-guilty, from condemned to justified. So you are invited to do that even now as we take communion together. Uh, if you're not a believer in Jesus, if you've not received Him, received justification by grace as a gift through faith in Him, we would ask for you to not take this meal. Stay in your seat. This is a Christian meal. And rather than pretending to be a Christian, we would invite you to become one for real. Right? So don't, don't come to this table and pretend to be one, to be a part of Christ's body if you aren't yet. Instead, let our enjoyment of this meal entice you to come to Christ. And Emmaus, as always, I invite you to this table in the name of Jesus. This is His table. And He's glorified as we participate with Him in His body. So we take this meal as a remembrance of the propitiation that He offered in the death of Christ. We take this meal as an act of fellowship with Christ and with one another. And we take this meal in hope of glory. For as often as we eat this meal and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until Christ returns. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.